I wanted to re-release this episode in tribute to the incredible Dame Deborah James to share in her words, her life, her lessons, her rebellious hope and almighty power, which has seen her not only live an extraordinary life, but impact the lives of others beyond measure. The legacy she leaves will live on, and in her last column, she encouraged us all to find a life worth enjoying, take risks, love deeply, have no regrets, and always, always have rebellious hope. So on that note, I leave you with the glorious Deborah sharing her story in her own words. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, Deborah. I can't tell you how lovely it is to meet you, even though it's virtually. And we're 14 weeks into lockdown. You're a true beacon of light. And I've been following you and you've been changing the view on cancer. And I cannot wait for this conversation because I know you've been on such a journey. Even though I haven't actually met you, I feel like I know you. So it's just so lovely. I'm looking at your ridiculously gorgeous face, I must say. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me on. Firstly, I know we've been trying to do this for a while, but nailing me down is a nightmare. Well, we're here now. We're neighbours, aren't we? We are. I actually feel like I almost know you because randomly I go into your shop in St. Margaret's. I live in South West London, along the river, in Barnes. And I just love that whole part of the world. It kind of very much feels like where I feel most settled. After all of this, now I know you're in the shop, we have no excuse then to have a great coffee. Um, I'd love to just go back a bit and start at the beginning because you grew up in Surrey and you were a very keen gymnast. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gymnastics was my life. I was picked at the age of five. It was an obsession and a passion and it was my childhood very, very much so. Um, I got to kind of 14 and 15 and I knew that I was not going to make the Olympics. I think I just probably discovered boys and puberty and growing up and I look back at it really, really fondly. You know, when things just come to a natural end, but in a nice way, actually, retrospectively. I read that you strive to be an overachiever. You pack too much into your day. You're achieving so much. What were your passions in that sort of teenage land and your younger adult life? So at school, I was sports captain. I was the girl that was always prefect. I wasn't geeky. I was always at the party and certainly had boyfriends. That sounds a bit wrong, doesn't it? And so what led you into becoming a teacher? I had a bit 
bit of an interesting schooling, actually, in that I just went to local state school that was okay. I had some brilliant teachers there who were my sports teachers. So when I stopped gymnastics, I got into athletics. So I did like pentathlon, like netball, all these different sports. But I just was one of those people who could pull things out at the last minute a little bit. Basically, I'm dyslexic. In order to get around it, I developed a photographic memory. I can't spell, but I still got an A in my English literature and I write now. But I got around it through kind of memorising keywords, which I knew was enough in the exam. You're talking to a fellow dyslexic here. Okay, that's good. I always say that to reassure people like my daughter, who's also dyslexic, that it's not a problem. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. In a way, I call it a superpower sometimes because you have to be quite athletic in your mind. You have to start thinking about different ways around things, which I would say other people don't have. Yeah. So it can be a blessing. And then I suddenly started thinking about university and I went to Exeter and that was probably the best thing for me and got to the end of it and realised I don't really know what to do. And my parents were like, Debbie, you need to get a job. (laughs) It was like, oh, shit, what do I do with my life? And it was at the time when you had bursaries for teaching, but only in certain subjects. And my degree is in economics. And the only subjects they were doing bursaries for teaching in so I could afford to do it was things like computer science. So I just applied. I was the only girl in the country that applied. Oh, my goodness me. So I think by default, they kind of just had to give me a place because they were like... She's the only girl. Then I got onto the course and realised that I knew nothing about computer science. So the first day that I turned up, there was 20 of us on the course and there was a room of 19 boys and me. And I rocked up and I wore the shortest skirt that I could possibly wear and some really arrogant boy turned around and he said to me I think you're in the wrong place like peas down the corridor and I just thought fuck you and then I made damn sure that I qualified first in my class but I had to work really damn hard I loved it I then fell in love with teaching I had to teach myself so much because I realized that I had no subject knowledge (laughs) that is a very long-winded reason as to why I became a teacher because then I I just had a bit of a purpose in terms of what I was doing and I just wanted to again change the system Before you were diagnosed, you were very career-driven in terms of, well, you must have been because you became deputy head teacher at a secondary school. You also had two young children. I'm I'm sort of going to that place in time where you're also experiencing difficulties within your marriage. Basically, everything suddenly was happening, wasn't it, for you? Tell me about this period of your life. I think people will relate to what happens when you you're quite, well, very career-driven in terms of you get caught up in the world that you want to change and be part of. I am very guilty for mentally being able to compartmentalise my emotional ability to work and family. Mm -hmm. Somehow I just can't. I'm a kind of work Deborah or I'm a kind of switch off and party girl. Mm -hmm. But it means that then when I'm in a work mode everything else around me suffers Mm -hmm. and that will be my health 
my relationships, including my marriage, um, and then possibly my kids, although I think my kids are kind of indirectly quite resilient as a result of it. <laughs> but yeah, you you go through a period of your life where you're like, I want to be a head teacher, I want to do this. And I was on a very, very fast track scheme to headship. I was really ambitious. The reason I wanted to be a head is because I didn't like the system again, mm-hmm. and I wanted to change it, and I knew we could do better but I think you then get caught up with that dream. Mm-hmm. Your marriage suffers. My husband separated. Um, I have to be honest with you, that was really challenging. You've mentioned it was a classic case of our marriage coming last. And I think that does happen. It's this way, isn't it, that you can be incredibly focused if you're an ambitious person. And I'm talking also from personal experience, you know, you have a focus, you're going for it. Um, you know, and also it's that case of wanting it all, you know, family and a career and you're hell bent in getting to a destination. And if you have someone else working as well within the household, it's a very crowded space where potentially your marriage or potentially the kids and all these sort of things don't have their rightful space. You don't make time for it, basically. I know because we've had a previous conversation and I think you articulated it beautifully in that you said, what did you say? You said, I bounce, when I find somebody, I... Firestarter conversations. Firestarter conversations. I love firestarter conversations. That's how I thrive in life. The problem is that I'm easily persuaded into firestarter conversations rather than going, no, 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 I need to just go home and look after my family. I'm the person that somebody says, oh, but have you thought about this idea? And I'm still talking about it at three o'clock in the morning because I'm so excited by it and the adrenaline is amazing. Yes. And that's really challenging because then you get home late and you've got that energy inside of you. It is a real challenge. I wouldn't say I've transformed at all, but it's certainly made me question myself. I've become even more self-aware of actually what a bit of a nightmare I am sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? Aren't we all? I know that during this time that we're talking about in your life, you were leading a really healthy life. You were vegetarian for 25 years at that point. You were running regularly and yet you started to notice something wasn't right. When you're busy, like I said, everything else gets parked and that includes your health. But, you know, if there's one thing that you listen to, my message would be don't park your health. Mm. I uh, kept on putting off a change in bowel habits and I put it down to the stress of being Ofsted every six weeks. I had a couple of blood tests and they all came back normal. Mm -hmm. And then I had something called an FOB test, which is a poo sample. It's now been changed to something called a fit test, which is much more accurate. But my FOB test at the time also came back normal. But you kind of go, right, if your bloods are normal, Mm -hmm. there shouldn't be too many lifestyle factors at the age of 35 for anyone, in fact. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I did keep on going back to my doctors and I was never referred for a colonoscopy. So I had to privately get a colonoscopy done. I'm privileged that I can afford to go and get it done. If I wasn't in that position, the other side of the coin, I wouldn't be sitting here chatting with you. Mm -hmm. But even for me, with the money to enable me to do that, it was still really late in the game. I would say that experience is certainly a driver for me in terms of wanting that not to happen to other people. Because then unfortunately, by the time I was diagnosed with cancer, it was stage four. I had a six and a half centimetre tumour in my bowel and then eight tumours in my lungs. My goodness. You were obviously someone who noticed something. You kept really pushing and pushing and pushing. 
And I can only imagine that moment that you found out and how you left your job, which of course I can imagine was incredibly difficult. You have to tell your family. How did you manage during these early days of your diagnosis? I think you don't actually, to be honest with you. You you kind of go into a fake world of like just existing really. It's actual trauma. So you pretty much exist from day to day and you float. I call it just floating along in a little bubble of surreal depression probably. Um, and thinking this can't be real this can't be real and you're right I kind of had to park a lot of things in my life I mean the job thing was quite interesting because originally I didn't quite realize how serious my bowel cancer was so I got diagnosed on the 16th of December which for any teacher will know is quite often the last day of term and because it was Christmas we decided that we weren't going to operate actually until the first week of the new year In true teacher fashion, I went in on the first day of term. Then I got up and I told the whole school why I wasn't going to be there. And I said, just having an operation is fine. At this point, we didn't actually know it spread to my lungs. It was only after we removed the bowel tumour. Because I was deputy head, I had invested a lot in the school. Mm. People trusted me. And it was a school that I did not want to let people down on. Mm -hmm. It was really important for me to do that. And so I went in. It was really hard for me to tell them. I said, don't worry, I'll be back in like six weeks maximum. They reckon like eight weeks for recovery. But, you know, I might just pop in in a couple of weeks. Um, And then off I trotted and into hospital the next day for a bowel resection. And then my life totally changed. I then unfortunately went from like negative news to negative news to negative news. Um, And at each kind of scan or um, consultation, it seemed to go from what we thought was quite an early stage cancer to what essentially is an incurable cancer. Yes, I'm living with it and I've had a roller coaster of different places in terms of where I've been in terms of treatment, but the statistics are very much stacked against me. So only 8% of people will survive for five years with metastatic bowel cancer in this country. When I speak to you and we were talking off, and we're going to talk about some of the projects that you're working on and how busy you are and the energy pouring out of you. And, you know, it's quite unbelievable because I can only imagine, well, I can't imagine actually, but I know some listeners might have been through cancer themselves or with a loved one with cancer. It sent you into a massive depression to not have that in your world. You didn't have a job. You didn't have what was you. Not only did you not have that as your anchor, But, you know, you were dealing with a whole world that's unknown to anybody, I suppose, until that awful day that you are diagnosed. Yeah. So on the career front, I defined my worth quite a lot by my career success. And Hands up. Absolutely. I totally understand that. For someone that loves their career, for it to disappear overnight, and that was my choice, actually. The reason is because I worked on the front line. And for anyone that works on the front line, they'll appreciate picking up the pieces for people who are just not there every single day is actually almost more of a hindrance than it is a help. And I know that sounds really harsh. I do understand that, actually, yes. Having been the person that is trying to cover for people who are like, I I might be in, I might not. And it's not their fault. It's just, ultimately, I'm dealing with cancer. And actually, can I be 100% relied upon to be at that school at 7 o'clock every single morning? 
no, I can't. Mm. So I just had to make the decision not to, which was absolutely awful because what I realized is that by doing so, it plummeted me into absolute depression, probably more so than my cancer. Because yes, I was dealing with my cancer, but I had nothing else to distract me. So I plummeted into massive depression. And then I got to one day where a friend of mine came round and my mum came round and they went, Deborah, get out of bed. You really fucking smell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're laughing now. And of course, it's not a funny matter because I really do empathize. And I think a lot of people who have relied on their personal worth, in a, in a sense, to be associated with what they build and what they do, it's incredibly difficult when that's taken away from you. So you got into that shower, you sprayed on some deodorant. turning point, that's why I remember it so much. <laughs> and this is when, through this journey, this stage, you decided to start your blog, Bowel Babe, to help raise awareness that young women also get bowel cancer. And it was so incredibly brave of you to tackle this at a time that must have felt, well, firstly, it was incredibly personal to yourself. Did you find that writing helped you in what must must have been this prolonged dark period of your life yeah 100 percent. so I started writing actually to I was part obviously part of a wonderful teaching community and people wanted to know how I was doing because people are nice actually yeah and I um selfishly found it quite emotionally draining to repeat my story and so I just wanted to be able to put my story out there and then it's there it's part I've never written before like that really to be honest with you and a blog just felt the right way to go and bow babe was a bit kind of tongue-in-cheek because whenever I started looking for young women with cancer it was always associated with pink breast cancer mm -hmm. don't get me wrong no cancer is pink and fluffy but the marketing and the image around young women with cancer is pink ribbons and a smiley t-shirt through my research, I then realised there's more women out there not with breast cancer. Mm. And actually, I think Bow Babe is almost a bit of a tongue-in-cheek kind of poke at that system, kind of saying, hang on a moment, what about me? And you really have two choices. I can't change my cancer. I wish I, wish I could. But I can become a victim of my cancer, absolutely. And But I know where that's going to spiral me to. But then it's having the ability to flip it. So it's like, okay, fine. But now I'm done with that. I need to kind of get on with something else. But for me, the writing and then being able to turn shit into gold, that's what you want to be able to do as a teacher. Not that the kids are shit, but you, you yes. want to be able to tell a child who comes from nothing that they can do anything. And it's the same with rubbish situations like cancer. You want to be able to make sure that actually this shouldn't be happening in the last two weeks, I've said goodbye to one very, very close friend of mine. And over the last three and a half years, I have said goodbye to too many people. And that needs to stop. And it has to stop. So that's what drives me to share my story. It was through this writing that you then bonded with Rachel Bland and Laura Mahon and decided to co-host this Brilliant and award-winning, of course, if anything to do with you, you, me, and the big C. I mean, it really is just the most wonderfully soulful, brilliant podcast. And I think it really did make people sit up and listen to the honesty 
surrounding cancer and it had never been spoken about in this way. And I know that tragically you recorded your last podcast as a trio just 10 days before Rachel died. Tell me about this podcast and what that did for you, for you as a group and for you individually. We were all on different platforms. So my writing became a column because one of the editors of The Sun, who I know, said, oh, I can publish your blog. And I said, no, no, I'll write it for you. And I've been writing a column every week for the last three years, which is an amazing platform. Wow. And then obviously Instagram became part of that. And you're right. That's how I then met uh, Rachel. And Rachel then put me in contact with Lauren. And the three of us had never actually met in real life until we went to Manchester to record our first ever podcast. And essentially what's happened is Rachel and I were diagnosed within a couple of months of each other and she had breast cancer. But me and Rachel were speaking through Twitter and then she knew that I was kind of like doing writing. She was obviously in broadcasting and just said, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, go on then. (laughs) (laughs) why not I think when you've got cancer everyone's like oh god don't do that and I'm like just say yes I mean what have you got to lose and then we just bonded over the fact when you're in the crap you want to be in the crap with people that understand it very sadly we recorded right up until 10 days before she died and that was really hard because Rachel was totally unique in terms of the way that she faced her death she did it on her terms she knew she was going to die and she led us in terms of talking about really hard topics from death to joking about what we're going to wear at her funeral because there's always laughter in darkness and she was so brave is the wrong word dignified incredible I don't think I could do that actually I would be in denial I think a lot more than she was and yeah it was very challenging and then um, it got quite a lot of public attention so I think I was flung very much into the media and 15 minutes after my friend died I knew that I was going to be on air and I just broadcast because I knew that that's what she would have wanted me to do and she knew that I could do it so I did it but then about six months later I just hit a brick wall. I remember the time actually I remember hearing about the podcast and how much awareness was driven to talking about cancer differently. We'd never done it before. I think the C word is a scary word for a lot of people. And so you made it something that we could speak about, as you said, less in that sort of breast cancer walks and things like that. It was much more sort of very real, three women that you could identify with just talking. And I know you had a dream to write your incredibly inspiring and honest book, Fuck You Cancer. And That whilst writing is, I just think about what you've been able to achieve whilst, am I right in saying you were receiving treatment throughout all of this? You know, the book is so beautifully written. It's eloquent. I know friends who unfortunately in this lockdown have been diagnosed with cancer. They've bought your book and I cannot tell you how much it is helping them. They live by your book, actually. I've got to tell you that. I remember reading that you didn't actually know if you would be there for that moment when it was published. Talking about cancer in a way that is relatable is really key. And I hope that the podcast does that because I think there's always this vision of what cancer looks like. But cancer looks like me. Um, It looks like my mates. It, It can be any one of us and one in two of us are going to get it. In 1979, on average, across all cancers, the life expectancy was one year. Mm. 
now more people will live for 10 years than will die of cancer. So we have started to transform. No, we're not curing. We can cure some cancers, but we have a duty, I think, to educate our next generation. And so unless people like myself or our generation start doing that because we can show that we can live with cancer, we're going to bring up a generation of children really scared of it. And then I think my book is a funny educational thing. I was incredibly lucky that I um, got offered this chance because in the true last minute nature of Deborah's life, lied to my publisher about having been totally on it, wrote it in about four weeks at the last stage of my chemo cycle. And I was taking loads of painkillers because I was typing so quickly. I was in so much pain that I was there like... But I basically went into like a writer's dark hole of emotional like roller coaster um, and came out with a book. And then I'm writing another one. So my next book is called How to Live When You Should Be Dead. (laughs) Am I allowed to say what a brilliant title? Oh, thank you. (laughs) One of the things I hear you speak passionately about is this changing of the language around cancer. You know, so not only were you going to go through cancer and going through cancer, but you decided that the system was broken and someone needed to fix it. So why do you really think it's important? Is it because of that younger generation and making sure that your daughter, your son, their children start to have a different mindset about it? Um, It's funny how you always come back to your passion, right? So when I first got diagnosed, I was like, I want to share my story. I want to share my story. And then three and a half years down the line, what I've realized is education on whatever platform that looks like is key. If we speak to the right people, actually, it can have a much wider impact. So I've naturally come back to my geeky strategic side because I live in quite a heartbreaking world for example with bowel cancer as I said earlier my chances of survival are like eight percent when it's caught early it's over 90 percent it is a survivable curable cancer but this is the same with most cancers across the board in fact so cervical cancers are getting our smear tests done checking our boobs and it's all good and well kind of doing awareness but actually research is what's keeping me alive and I just think that there's a lot to be changed in terms of education even at the GP level in terms of young people get cancer so take them seriously there's a lot to change in terms of personalizing care I can't fix the system but I can certainly ask difficult questions and certainly use my platform for what I hoped will be positive change, which is essentially saving people's lives. Deborah launched the Bow Babe Fund for Cancer Research UK. The fund has two main aims, to provide funding for clinical trials and research into personalised medicine, which could result in new treatments for cancer patients, including projects in collaboration with partners like the Institute of Cancer Research and the Royal Marsden. And secondly, to continue support to raise awareness of cancer, such as Bowel Cancer UK's Never Too Young campaign. Deborah's ask to us all is that the next time you pop for a coffee or grab a drink with a friend, please consider donating the cost of one extra for her. You can donate by visiting bowbabe.org and you can follow the fund on Instagram at bowbabefund.org. 
I watch you dance in the garden. I watch you do all of these things and this sort of energy. And I, I do look at you and I think, how does she do that? Does she feel unwell right now? Is this a brave face? Is this real? Tell me about that because I think that there's a energy. That's all I can describe it. And anyone who doesn't follow you must follow you to know what I'm talking about. Does that help you get through? It's a little bit of faking it till you make it. If you're feeling rubbish, I almost trick my mind into not feeling rubbish by just dancing, for example. (laughs) And then funny enough, actually, you do feel a bit better. But you know what, when you're feeling really down and depressed, and you've literally said goodbye to another friend, actually, life might not be that great. So you need to have things that will allow you to pull yourself out of the darkness, because you can sit in the darkness, but living in the darkness is not a very fun place to be. Cancer does change you, but in a way it doesn't actually. If you have cancer, the best thing you can do is kind of still remind yourself who you were before cancer. I'm a geek who likes to know the facts, who wants to make a change, who who actually likes the pretty gritty educational stuff. But I think actually when I am working within that zone of kind of education or kind of like challenging, when your brain is thinking hard, that is actually when I feel most contented and most happy. And do you think that that's what's seen you through, that you almost replace, if we go back to your story, leaving your being a teacher and that defined you and now you have created during this period of time something else that defines you it's different but the same when I talk to businesses that their business saves them when they're going through illness cancer bereavement they're able to go back in it's something that's at least controllable they can't control their illness or they can't control their grief but this project this thing travels with them Yeah, and I found it really difficult because almost cancer became my business. I'm not the victim. You need escapism. Whatever that escapism looks like, then you kind of feel like you have control and it's it's taking back control. Things like that are important to me, but I also know they're not important to everyone. So I also know there's people who would just be going, take a chill pill, like focus on your kids. And that's fine, but I've tried to do lots of those kind of things, you know, at various points over the last 15 years. But actually, I'm at my happiest when I'm driven in a project. Pushing forward positively. Am I right in saying in January this year, your recent scans had been positive? I have metastatic cancer, but I got to an incredibly amazing place because of treatment and drugs, where I actually went from having about 15 tumours to getting back into a place where I had no evidence of disease. I was cancer-free on paper. Now, you're only as good as your last scan, really. Um, What essentially happened was when COVID happened, my oncologist now was like, I don't want to take you off drugs. I don't want to take you off drugs. It was a very good thing, actually, for me now, because I thought I was one up on the cancer. And so you kind of think, oh, I can take my foot off the pedal. And cancer taught me a lesson so I basically came off my drugs because I was like I'm done with it COVID's happening four weeks later I went in for a blood test and my tumor markers which is what we use to monitor went skyrocketed and it was almost like somebody was saying to me Deborah you have not learned anything you need to realize that you 
need to control your cancer. Um, essentially, my tumour markers went high. And then unfortunately, on the scan, there wasn't new tumours, yay, which is great. But there was active areas. So some of my lymph nodes had become active. So I didn't have a choice. I mean, I was then like tail between my legs back in the hospital chair the next day. And then unfortunately, had to have during COVID, both radiotherapy and CyberKnife. I saw. The problem is you never know what would have happened had I stayed on the drug or whatever. Yeah. I've had all that treatment. I'm still on treatment. It's kind of one of those things. I will always have to manage this. Mm -hmm. Tumor markers have now come back down to normal. I feel okay. I feel tired, but I think that's just because I can't sleep. (laughs) And through this time, you knew you were dealing with cancer and COVID. And I hear that you're also now filming for the BBC's panorama, um, the impact of COVID on cancer. I've read through all the statistics during this period of time. The emphasis has been taken off cancer during this period. Tell us about this. Really enjoying making it, actually. It was very clear early on. Even I noticed the shift in terms of cancer services. And I was hearing heartbreaking stories of people whose treatment were just being whipped away um people having to weigh up the risk yes in the uk about a thousand people every single day are told you have cancer covid happened people were really scared people didn't go to their gps so what we call patient referrals which is essentially where somebody will go to get a referral which will eventually lead to a diagnosis was down actually down by 75 percent but the problem is is that cancer doesn't go anywhere And that's really scary to know that there's thousands and thousands sitting there with undiagnosed cancers. We now have a backlog in the system because, unfortunately, cancer services were compromised and they were shut down. And we arguably have a national crisis on our hands. I know people campaigning for heart disease will tell you exactly the same story. And I think the question is, did we become a corona service versus a national health service? We have to remember that so many health conditions go on at the same time. Mm. The impact on life as a result of that will be huge um, in terms of when you look at somebody that, say, is a 40-year-old that might have been denied treatment for their bowel cancer or pushed treatment for their bowel cancer because it was deemed that their risk of COVID was too high. Actually, it's transpiring that they're far more likely to have died of their bowel cancer or will die of their bowel cancer. So we can see the headlines coming out every single day at the moment. The data that I've been geeking over, but not in a positive way, just in a shocking way, is quite tragic. And then the reality is it becomes real life. And the real life are my friends or people in the cancer community And the case studies and the case studies, unfortunately, is my friend Kelly. And my friend Kelly was diagnosed with bowel cancer at the same time as me. And she died two weeks ago. And we filmed with her for the programme. And her story will and is having an impact on hopefully a call to action to help to work together to sort this. Forget the statistics. When you see it, you see it there as a life and me knowing that I am on the other side of the coin because I got treatment. That is the driver, really, and the heartbreak. I sound really morbid, don't I? Sorry, I don't mean to sound sad. 
But you know what? It's an amazing thing that you're doing this. And God willing, we will never be in this situation again. But let's say we ever were. What you're doing here, making this program, is going to be fantastic in that it cannot happen again. That, As you said, that life and people struggling and with diagnosis, and as I said, two people I know were diagnosed with cancer during COVID, it has been incredibly difficult to be told that you potentially have breast cancer, but unfortunately we won't be able to treat it. We're coming to the end of this interview. I wanted to ask if you had to sort of summarise what you've learned about life it's a hard one to ask, and I know we'll, I'll be asking you to read your letter to your younger self, but almost outside of that, the insights into life, is there one burning insight that you have that you can share with us because of your journey? So my best advice to somebody would be like, never to plan out your life. Do it, but then rip it up. The reason is because I am a teacher that had a five-year plan, a 10-year plan. Now, my life had to be ripped up. I didn't have a choice. And I'm okay. Yeah, I wish I didn't have cancer. But then people say to me, oh, but you've done all these amazing things. I hope that I would have got to do them anyway. I would give up everything not to have cancer. I would absolutely give up everything not to have the cancer. But Will I die with any regrets? No. But would I have done? Maybe. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. On this podcast, Deborah, I ask everybody, what's been your highs and lows? You know, your sort of the roller coaster of life for you, the roller coaster of cancer, this journey building Bow Babe. Tell me what would you say has been one of your biggest lows on this journey? My biggest low is um, I say goodbye to more people than. I celebrate weddings or or births and uh, I say goodbye to friends within the community and then every so often through this journey you meet not I'm not saying people aren't real friends but you meet people that are your special people Um, and I unfortunately have lost too many special people I don't do crying but that's what breaks me I can imagine and I can see. And so thank you for sharing that. And conversely, then, through that tragedy that I can really feel your proudest moment, your greatest high. Uh, Recently in lockdown, it's just been learning how to cook. (laughs) I made a quiche the other day and then a souffle. And I was like, I don't even recognize this girl. So that was a positive. But I would say it's just moments of like, winning some awards or getting recognition is recognition driven I never take a moment to like stop and go oh my god like that's quite good I just like plow on and go right what's next what's next are we doing this are we doing this um and actually realizing that even in the rubbish you can have a lot of laughs and that is a choice that's a choice that I've made and I think that you know if nothing else I think that's what I'm most proud of myself for is like time to laugh Mm. at the shit I think everyone that follows you that's what we're proud of you for doing that's your gift to us I would say and um one word that springs to mind that's been your friend during this journey kindness absolutely kindness kindness from other people kindness to yourself Kindness in the situation, understanding that you can't change it, but you can change the way you respond to it. 
just kindness actually I'm sure there's lots of better words but I think that probably sums up the words you're a true inspiration you really are and I do think that everyone should hear your story just your resilience Deborah your resilience your determination is pretty phenomenal you're a pretty phenomenal woman I'd love to sit firstly and drink coffee with you in the shop I want to drink wine with you in the evening you've really taught so many of us so much about cancer and if any of us were to have to travel that journey you've made it less scary so from me and everybody thank you Deborah for that thank you I can't wait as soon as your shop reopens I'm in there I can't believe it's at the end of my sister's road I know isn't that funny And now it's that time in the podcast where I hand over to you to read your letter to your younger self. I don't know what you're going to say, um, but I just wanted to thank you in advance for sharing a piece of your soul with us today. Thank you, Deborah. Um, So I've chosen to write to my 30-year-old self. I thought about this for a while and I realised actually that was probably the time in my life that I probably needed the most amount of reminding about what's important in life. So I appreciate I'm not a child, but I probably was a child. (laughs) Um, Dear Deborah, happy 30th birthday. Um, Are you okay? Well, I know you aren't, but you fool even yourself over your ability to at least look okay. And you need to question, are you thriving? Well, you look on the surface to be so, but that's the beauty You look like a swan. On the surface, everything is fine. But underneath, you're just paddling as quickly as you possibly can to stay afloat. In front of you is a massive, massive wall. And you've tried to look incredibly hard. And simply, you can't see it. You're going to hit it really hard. You'll crash like you never knew possible. You think you've crashed before. But this is something else. You will face death, relationship breakdowns, and failure proper failure. I'm pleased you don't know this actually, because if you knew it, you'd probably run in the opposite direction. You wouldn't realise how you already have everything you need to get through it, whatever the outcome might be, because sometimes getting through it might not lead us down the path that we want to tread. So right now, At the age of 30, please stop and breathe and look at the trees for once. You say that you look at them, but you don't really. And stop worrying about what might be and realize that life is okay if it doesn't go to a plan. I know that you get nervous even thinking about what happens if there's not a plan. Have you even stopped to acknowledge that on the outside, your life actually looks pretty good right now? You've always been an overachiever. You did well. Pat yourself on the back for once. Say, well done. You've ticked the boxes. But more than that, you're actually making a difference in something that you love and having fun along the way, dancing as always, friends around you, always with a big glass of wine. But somewhere niggling inside of you, you feel unfulfilled. Do you even stop to remember that there is a world that doesn't revolve only around you, your career and what goes on in your brain? Do you know that your kids love you not because you buy them stuff consistently, but because they just love you for being their mum? If the world ended tomorrow, you'd go down clawing away, shouting, no, 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 I'm not done yet. You're always going to think like that, but you will learn that actually you can feel happier with the choices that you make. So should the world end tomorrow, 
you at least feel that you have no unfinished business. But that's because you're currently living in the future and you're saving the real living that you have for another day. The one where we say, well, one day we'll do this or when I'm older, I want to do this or let's put this aside for a rainy day or you know what, when we finish working, let's retire and go and do this. You'll go through life assuming that you have life and you take it for granted because it's always there, right? It's always been there and you've never questioned it. You've always, always had a future. That's correct. You shouldn't be scared of not having a future. But when it's taken away from you, you realise just how precious the idea of having a future is. You will never be organised. Don't even try to pretend that you can be because one day you will realise you just need to stop and ask for help. Dance, keep dancing, dance through the storm because it will carry you far. Anxiety will live with you forever, but remember it's been with you for 15 years and will be with you for 15 more. You will ride it and learn to recognise it and it will always be one of your largest challenges. Don't ever assume you have it cracked. You don't and you probably never will. But let's remember there are dark points. You've come through them and that you will do it again and you will be back there again. You must remember this fact. But let's look back to 10 years ago when you were 20. You couldn't drive at night for fear of dying, triggered by the death of your cousin Vicky. You couldn't fly for fear of dying. You couldn't walk along a busy London street for fear of dying, collapsing, having an unprovoked heart attack. You feared death in every aspect of your life. You lived through anxiety and were driven through the adrenaline of life, but really it was fueled by your fear of death. It was and has always been your largest fear. Every health anxiety boiled down to that key question, am I going to die? Well, yes, Deborah, you probably will die. In fact, not probably, certainly all of us will die. Maybe you'll die at 80. Most likely you'll die before you're 40. Arguably, it's anybody's guess. But go long, back the outlier. You've always been the outlier. You will get cancer before the age of 40. That in itself is an outlier, an overachiever. But then be the outlier and recognise that actually things, yet again, don't always go according to plan. And this can also have its positives. Life, yes, indeed, doesn't go according to plan. Make the plan, rip it up, go off piece and have the confidence to know that you will be okay. Not all the time, but believe that you can do things you never thought you could do because you simply said yes. And to know that actually saying yes is taking you to the darkest and most wonderful places. Know that your kids will know how much they are loved, not by the time you spent with them, but by the way that you made them feel. And above all, know it's okay to cry. Yes, it's okay to crack sometimes to show people your weakness because ultimately you know you can wipe them and tomorrow is another day and all we can do is be grateful to have one more day because that big future that you used to live in it just might never happen so you have a choice be sad and mourn for it feel sorry for it plan for it or live now one day at a time because you will realize that all you have left is now because you ride it every moment on the wings of angels that only wish they had one more sunset to watch, one more morning to see in. So Deborah, I can't promise you that life ahead will be easy for the next 10 years, but life is a gift. And girl, if anyone can dance along the pathway of it, then you can. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Oh, deary me. <laughs> what a beautiful, beautiful letter. What a beautiful letter. And it's so eloquent and beautifully written. And um, I really thank you because um, you must have had to dig deep to write that and to share that with us and you're very vulnerable and thank you so so much for your energy you're just oh you're a beam of energy and um thank you so much Mm -hmm.